Ami, thank you so much for being with us here today. Happy to be here, John. Uh, Ami, we're doing an interview series here, and we're wanting to get the stories of our teaching fellows. Now, I want to understand, um, you're, you're originally from the States, but, but your family is originally from the Philippines. So I'm a first-generation American, which means I'm the first person in my family to be born in the United States. Um, but there was this question for me about the happy accident of being born in the U.S. And I always felt drawn to learn and understand more about my Filipino heritage and roots. Mm. I think that's something that a lot of people in the diaspora community feel. Mm -hmm. I really had the opportunity to revisit that desire mm -hmm. to get to know more about the Philippines and to see how I might be able to contribute in some way to mm -hmm. the country that was really my, my place of origin mm. and what had given me so much to my parents. And so I worked for a few years, uh, then I went to graduate school at Harvard, Kennedy School, and then after graduate school, I decided to take the leap and come and live here. I think you worked in different uh, developing countries, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us about that work and then how that brought you to Harvard and then eventually here. So right after graduating from uh, my undergrad, I found a job with the American Cancer Society. It was a very good fit as a first job. I think I really wanted to do international development work. I happened to speak uh, a few languages, yeah. and so it was really an asset to the team. And so what I did really was coordinate and manage programs to train advocates on how to um, persuade or lobby their governments to mm. pass health legislation that would protect citizens. I see. The third big program that I ran was in 10 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, Nigeria, Togo, Burkina Faso, Kenya, among others. And in the process of doing this work, trying to figure out how to use uh, effective means of communication and persuasion to get governments to enact legislation to protect their citizens, I thought maybe I wanted to go to law school. Mm -hmm. I was dealing a lot with the law and contracts, and I thought maybe I want to explore this further. Um, but I applied to law school and didn't end up getting into any law schools. And so I thought to myself, what is it that I really want to do? And I discovered through this process of reflection that what I really wanted to do was learn how to be a better advocate for myself and for others. Mm -hmm. So I found public policy programs. And I applied to public policy programs. And um, I happened to be accepted to the Harvard Kennedy School where I decided to go and see how I could be better at what I was already doing. Does Harvard live up to its reputation? What was your time like there? It does. I, I always remember when I was sitting in the JFK Forum at orientation, the first thing that they told us was that Harvard doesn't make admissions mistakes. And I couldn't <laughs> help but thinking sitting there, like, no, you're very wrong. I'm not supposed to be here. Um, I think more than the institution itself or the professors or the teachings, which are all very valuable, I think the biggest uh, value or the biggest gift that Harvard can give is the, the community members, mm. the students who are there. Because I learned so much from them. They all come from very different backgrounds, have a lot of different experiences. And I was pleasantly surprised at how humble everybody was. Humble. <laughs> you have this conception that you know people who go to Harvard have their noses up in the air. But um, I was very pleasantly surprised. And... Uh, it was an incredible experience to mm. be around people with such rich experience. What was your most memorable, like maybe you can, the, the, your biggest takeaways from Harvard? 
I had gone to Harvard after working for about five years. Yeah. And I'm glad that I took the time to be in a work environment before going back to school because I really saw those two years as a gift to be able to experiment and try new things in a safe environment that you don't necessarily have when you're in the professional world. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did a lot of things. I learned a lot of things academically, but I also tested myself in other ways. Mm -hmm. So I participated in bands. Um, I ran a talent show. I ran for student government, which is something mm -hmm. I never did when I was uh, in undergrad. And uh, yeah, I tried and tested new ways of trying to exercise leadership. What were your options and then what brought you back to the Philippines? So when I first uh, went to Cambridge, my first year of graduate school, I thought to myself, okay, I, I'm going to learn better ways of being a good advocate. And after that, I will take those learnings back to where I was, mm -hmm. working on health programs in Sub-Saharan Africa, and figure out how to do that better. But in the process of going through this journey of graduate school, I realized that maybe I should think about things in a different way, thinking about of my future as a blank slate. I knew that there were certain things that I wanted to do. I knew that there were certain things that would help me to feel fulfilled and whole. But I also knew that there wasn't one answer. Mm -hmm. So I began to explore other options, both outside of the health field, but also outside of Sub-Saharan Africa and some of the other countries and regions where I worked. And at a certain point, about halfway through my second year, I realized that maybe this is the time that I can come back to the Philippines since I don't really have any kind of predestined future, mm -hmm. I can choose to design it myself. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit background about adaptive leadership, what your experience was like at, Har at Harvard Kennedy School taking that course. So in my second year of, of the Harvard Kennedy School, I had the opportunity to study adaptive leadership, which is a framework created by two Harvard professors called Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky. And the course is really intended to help emerging or future or current leaders to understand that leadership is not actually something that one is born with. It's something that can be practiced, mm. just like you practice a sport or you practice an instrument. It's something that you have to train yourself to be able to do in the midst of setbacks and failures. Mm. So tell us about the work that you were involved when you arrived in the Philippines. So there were a few different projects that I worked on. Like I said, I wanted to shift from just being a public health advocate to thinking about other aspects of development. Okay. And specifically, other models of doing social impact work that weren't strictly about nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So at the time, social enterprise was becoming a very big topic and trend here in the Philippines. I see. And I began to work with organizations that were focused on social enterprise. Mm -hmm. So not just traditional charity models, but really thinking about the sustainability of work. Okay, so tell us about some of the social enterprises that you were involved in here in the Philippines. So the first social enterprise that I came into contact with was a, a solar lighting movement called Leader of Light. It was started by a fellow Harvard alumnus here in the Philippines. And basically what they do is they teach communities how to build their own solar lights. So instead of trying to import something from abroad that's quite expensive or requires patents or microcredit, what we do is we train communities how to build simple solar devices using parts that they can find in their community. Mm. So not only are we providing or empowering them with light, but we're giving them skills that they can then turn into a livelihood. 
All right, so Ami, tell us more about the work that you do at Hope in a Bottle. I, I always see these bottles over at Starbucks or at the local cafe. So what, what's the business model and how does it work? Who and who does it benefit? I mean, I seem to be attracted to projects that work with plastic bottles. Uh, <laughs> and Hope, while Leader of Light is really a more focused on nonprofit, kind of traditional kind of nonprofit or grassroots field work, Hope in a Bottle was really an innovative organization. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually the first recognized B Corps, the designation from the U.S. They're the first recognized B Corps here in the What's Philippines. What's a B Corps? Um, business corporation, right? So okay. it's a status that's given to social enterprises in the U.S., okay. sustainable social businesses. Uh, and so what Hope in a Bottle does is they produce products that help Filipino consumers make choices mm. about what they buy. Mm -hmm. uh, and make choices that enable them to help build a community around the Philippines. So one of their signature products is something called Hope in a Bottle, which as you mentioned, you can find at Starbucks or 7-Eleven, um, even supermarkets carry it. And what you do is, when you purchase Hope in a Bottle, 100% of the profits from the sale of that mm -hmm. bottle go to build public school classrooms in the Philippines, which uh, is a huge challenge here. We have mm -hmm. a lot of students, but not a lot a lot of classrooms. Mm -hmm. And so what Hope did was find an innovative way to try and finance the building mm -hmm. of those projects. But they also do a lot of work with coconut farmers. Mm -hmm. So they have now another product called Hope in a Coconut. Mm -hmm. It's a co-branded partnership with Vita Coco. Mm -hmm. And it's the same deal. So when you go to Starbucks or Rustans or some of the other entities here and you buy uh, an SKU or a, a bottle of, of Vita Coco, Profits from that sale will go towards helping coconut farmers in the Philippines, which is another huge community that is plagued by poverty and the cycle of farming. And it, it was a really amazing place to work. Mm. A lot of innovation, no bad ideas. I mean, we, you know, we thought about things like, can we build our schools using plastic bottle bricks? Mm. And that eventually became a reality. So Ami, when I go to Starbucks and I buy one of these Hope in a Bottles, what, what happens with the money that I give? When someone, when an individual goes to Starbucks to buy Hope in a Bottle, that profit is accumulated over time. Mm. And we don't only have individuals who are buying Hope in a Bottle, uh, we also work with a number of corporations mm -hmm. um, who either sell Hope in a Bottle on our behalf or purchase Hope in a Bottle. Uh, we have something that I hope that we call the Hope Meter. Mm. And so we monitor that every single day. And once the hope meter is full, mm. based on the sales of Hope in a Bottle, uh, that hope meter can go to build one public school classroom in partnership with DepEd. So Ami, right now you are the CEO and Chief Empowerment Officer of Three Points Ventures. Now, tell us what Three Points Ventures is and tell us about some of the challenges that you're, wanting, that you're, that you're tackling in the Philippines. It started out as a joke, actually. Um, so I was walking with a friend, and I have a tendency to be a bit clumsy and fall down. <laughs> and uh, they always reminded me to have three points. So to make sure that I hold onto a railing, or that I ground myself so that I don't fall down. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about the, the logo of my company is a triangle. And the triangle is a stable shape and geometry. Mm. So that's about really grounding yourself. But at the same time, it's also the symbol for delta, which means change. And the reason why I called my company Three Points and why this triangle is a symbol is because there is this tension between staying grounded but also being open to change. Mm -hmm. 
And the kind of premise behind this is I want to help people to connect the dots mm. faster so that they can be more effective at what they do, they can find more fulfillment in what they do, and really kind of embrace their full potential. Mm. So tell us about some of the work that you're doing uh, as a fellow or at, at Three Points Ventures, uh, coaching and teaching. One of the things that I also do as part of my practice at Three Points Ventures is to coach. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that they teach you when you train you to be a coach is that coaching is not, what coaching is not. So coaching, for example, is not training. Uh, training is basically giving people or transferring knowledge or skills mm -hmm. to people. It's not consulting. So often, if you are a consultant, an organization will come to you with a problem and look to you to solve it. Mm -hmm. Coaching is really about enabling the people who you are coaching to be able to come up with solutions themselves. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do, what I try to do, or my intention in teaching adaptive leadership is to help people to understand the tools that they have at their disposal right now to be able to exercise. You know, as the Chief Empowerment Officer at Three Points Ventures and as a teaching fellow, I, I know you do a lot of consulting uh, here, here in Manila. Now, um, what are some of the big, hairy, audacious challenges? What, what are the things that you, you, you're, you're tackling right now? Uh, what are some of the things that you're most interested in, doing, in, in addressing right now? Number one is traffic. Okay. If I could figure out some way to solve traffic, right, to be able to have people become more mobile without being frustrated by uh -huh. traffic. That would be one big, hairy, audacious goal. But that's also an example of an adaptive challenge. I right? see. So if you think about, yes, you might be able to enact policies that restrict people from driving on certain days or driving on certain hours. But part of it is also trying to be able to educate people about demanding change, because mm -hmm. it's not a sustainable practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that, for me, is the biggest hairiest, most audacious goal that mm. I have is to be able to help illuminate people in my community, which now is in the Philippines, about reframing their mindset, mm -hmm. not having to accept or not being willing to accept things that could be improved. How do you change a mindset to help people empower them, educate them, but also really feel that, that need that, hey, I, I'm able to do this. We are actually able to do this. I think part of it is creating a safe environment where people can have that courage to try and mm -hmm. test new things. Now, I can do that in a classroom. Uh, I can do that in a lecture hall. But I think the biggest challenge is being able to create a broader kind of butterfly or ripple effect mm -hmm. so that it's not just students looking to me to provide this answer, because then I become really a consultant. Mm -hmm. It's more about helping people to understand what they can do and kind of pushing them or guiding them or enabling them to enable other people. Mm -hmm. Because again, if I can do that in the classroom, once people step out of the classroom and are then confronted with maybe constraints of family obligations or work obligations, it becomes much more difficult to exercise that kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. So Ami, uh, we're now at the end of our conversation. Is there anything else you would like to tell us about? I just want to thank you, John. I want to thank you and the Center for Asia Leadership. I think when we first started this conversation about how we might work together, I found that we shared this idea or this desire or this drive to educate people in Asia about a different way of thinking about leadership 
this is a context like many other regions with a very particular lens on leadership. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to try and test and experiment and share different experiences. Ami, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you.